Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. What a full morning already. Seeing the Lord minister. Uh, it's such a privilege to be in church family, in this body together. It's an amazing thing that the Bible describes us as a body that is put together by God. And we see different parts of that uh, already throughout this morning as we've worshiped together, as we've celebrated the kids, and we've celebrated people who serve. We honor people within our body. I mean, it just, it just doesn't get any better. And I'm trusting that that's going to continue uh, this morning. As, as Steve mentioned, we have a special treat in store today. We actually have a special treat in store for the next couple of weeks. Um, today, uh, we're going to be hearing from Griffin Jackson, who's going to be preaching uh, from the Word. And next week, Aiden and Luis Lopez will be preaching as well. So you may be asking the question, uh, why are we going to hear from Griffin and Luis in these next couple of weeks? To which I would calmly retort, why not? No, I'm kidding. Uh, as, as elders, we, we are tasked with something that is, that is, yes, a task, but is also a privilege. And that is the, the task of overseeing discipleship. Uh, within the local church context. Uh, that is overseeing this reality of us walking alongside each other in relationship to Jesus, growing uh, more and more daily in our relationship with him. And that's not something that we'll ever outwork perfectly. Uh, I've never been accused of being perfect. I'm happy to, any of you who want to accuse me of perfection, go right, go right ahead. But it is something that we want to do biblically to the best of our ability. And we, th- this idea of seeing people, uh, overseeing discipleship within a local church is really this idea of seeing people mature, seeing people be matured in their relationship with God. And earlier this year, while we were going through our vision and values, we defined maturity as more and more readily saying yes to Jesus and becoming more and more like him. More and more readily saying yes to Jesus and becoming more and more like him. And one of the ways we want to spur our community on in that, into maturity, is by prayerfully and uh, hopefully wisely identifying the ways uh, that we are gifted by God with spiritual gifts. Uh, God has given men and women in the church spiritual, spiritual gifts, and we as elders want to find the right time and season to see those gifts, what we like to call, be released, that is, used, <laughs> And we see that the idea of spiritual gifts being used is not something that we actually have thought up. It's actually a biblical idea. The Bible is very clear about spiritual gifts, and it's let them be used. Let them be used. Uh, behind me on the screen, if you want to follow along, the Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 12, this is a man by the name of Paul writing to the church in Rome. He says, so in Christ we, though many, Form one body, we've already seen that expressed today, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach, and so forth and so forth. Timothy, a young man that Paul had befriended in the faith, uh, Paul writes to him uh, in, in this, the book of 2 Timothy, encouraging him to fan into flame the gift of God in 2 Timothy chapter 1. But discipleship and encouraging discipleship is more than just identifying gifts and spiritual gifts and getting that person into position as soon as possible. That's a little utilitarian because gifts themselves aren't actually a sign of maturity. Gifts aren't a sign of maturity. Gifts are given freely from God. Character is a sign of maturity. Your gifts can take you to places that your character can't keep you. 
Character is a sign of maturity. And just in those two passages of Scripture that we just referenced, let's look and remind ourselves again. In Romans chapter 12, just before Paul is talking about this body with all these gifts and the gifts should be used, he reminds us in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And that young man, Timothy, who Paul was encouraging to fan into flame the gift of God, Paul encourages him and immediately reminds him, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, listen to this, join with me in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. These aren't gift statements anymore. They're character statements. These are character statements. They're not just statements of who's gifted and how quickly can we get them in position. That's not discipleship. So why am I dwelling on this? Not even starting preaching yet. For the sake of clarity. You may be wondering, what, who preaches up here? Well, of course elders do. But we also want to identify people who, to whom God is gifted in the area of teaching, opening up the word of God. And when you hear from Griffin this week and when you hear from Luis next week, you can know two things for sure. Firstly, we see their gift to teach, to communicate, to revere, explore, break open, communicate the word of God, the Bible. But we also see their character. We also see their character. And we're trusting that through both of those things that God would speak to us as a church Benefiting them, yes, as they fan into flame the gift that God has given to them, but also benefiting us as a church by the way that God has gifted them. It's an expression of following Jesus, meaning being discipled. Does that make sense? Happiness? So, before I invite Griffin to come up and and continue in in this sermon series that we've been on, I just want to catch us up very quickly. Maybe you're visiting with us for the first time today, or maybe you've missed a couple of of the sermons that we've been going through in the last couple of months. But we've been in a sermon series called Kingdom Come. And we've called it Kingdom Come because it deals with a specific passage of Scripture in the book of Matthew, chapter 5 through chapter 7. And that passage of Scripture has been called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a place where Jesus is teaching his listeners about the kingdom of God, what he calls the kingdom of God. And we're nearing the end of this portion of scripture today, and next week we'll actually close this series. So let's, let's just remind ourselves briefly before Griffin comes. At every turn in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing the characteristics of God's kingdom. At every turn on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, through, through comparison, through metaphor, through outright explicit teaching, he's taking every opportunity to draw his listeners' attention and, and draw us as readers, our attention, to the characteristics of the kingdom of God. And what do we mean by the kingdom of God? Because we don't live in a kingdom anymore, and that word sounds kind of churchy, and what does that mean? When we say the kingdom of God, we mean the reign and rule and increase of influence of God and his ways. The reign and rule and increase of influence of God in his ways. And Jesus is taking every opportunity to describe what that kingdom looks like. And in doing this, Jesus actually describes the characteristics of the people who are a part of God's kingdom. Jesus describes the characteristics of of the people who are a part of God's kingdom. What do they look like? How do they live? What are their hearts like? Where do their motivations lie? How do they react to things? What are they preoccupied with? What are they obsessed with? What do their characteristics look like? Jesus is describing the people of the kingdom of God. 
And in order to do this, this description of God's kingdom and the people within it, uh, Jesus employs uh, the, the great use of contrast. And Jesus contrasts the kingdom of God with the self-focused religion of the day. And how many of you know that the religion of self, self-focus is still the dominant religion of our day? So Jesus takes the opportunity to contrast the reality of self-focused religion with the kingdom of God. And just to run through a few things that Jesus has, has done so far in teaching us about this. In, in religion, righteousness, that is right standing before God, right standing before God is achieved. It's earned. It's achieved. But in God's kingdom, righteousness can only be received. It can only be received by faith because of what Jesus has purchased for us on the cross. In religion, outside actions are more important than the inward heart. Outside actions are more important than the inward heart, but in God's kingdom, a godly heart can't help but be expressed in outwardly action. In God's kingdom, or excuse me, in religion, we grab all that we can to get rewarded now by the people who we make sure see us. In religion, we grab all that we can to get rewarded now by people. But in God's kingdom, we don't show off for others, but we trust that God rewards what only he sees. God rewards what only he sees. In religion, everything can be lost. So trampling others to get what you can is not just necessary, it's encouraged. Everything can be lost. But in God's kingdom, our obsession can be God's glory because he knows everything that we need. He knows everything that we need. And finally, in religion, worry and anxiety are moment-by-moment realities. They are ever-present realities. But as Steve showed us last week, in God's kingdom, freedom and peace abound because God is faithful and good, and he sees before. That's the essence of that word provide. He sees before. Jesus has employed contrast to say, essentially, come and compare for yourselves. This is the way of God's kingdom and the people in it. This is the way of self-focused religion. Most will not choose the way of God's kingdom. Most won't. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. How precious it is that Jesus is looking us in the eye and saying, I'm showing you how to find it. I'm showing you how to find it. And as Griffin is soon going to show us, God's kingdom is available to all. Won't be entered by all, but is available to all. Excluded from none. That's our heart, all of Jesus for everyone. So as Griffin comes up, let's trust that that kingdom will be demonstrated specifically in the godly characteristics in our lives as Jesus has encouraged. So can we just honor Griffin as he comes to join Yes, I am excited to bring the word a little bit. Oh, thank you. No, 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 I'm good. You, you do your thing. I'll see you guys next week. <laughs> I I am excited. I am a little bit nervous, uh, but I know that the Lord is here. The Lord is going to do his work and that no matter what happens to me, the Lord will be glorified. So that's, that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to focus on. Thank you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus.
So sometimes God, through our elders, has a, a funny way of speaking to us. And I say that because I don't think it's any accident that I'm bringing the word today from the beginning of Matthew 7. Just to keep it 100 with you, I probably would have preferred to preach from the end of this chapter, which is about identifying true and false prophets. Some of you guys, some of you might know that I'm an editor, that I like to ask tough questions and to probe and to challenge assumptions and really dig for that truth. But providentially, our text today is not about judging prophets. It's about not judging. When I, (laughs) good for me to to hear that. When I'm at work and I get a beast, when I get a 10,000 word paper, it's on me to spot the single comma, probably the hundreds of commas, but at least a single comma (laughs) that's out of place. In a way, my job is to judge. And sometimes we approach life like that. And honestly, that is a super useful skill, and and we all need some of that. But I will tell you, I'm so grateful that I'm not the editor of my own life. Because if I was this, there would be so many markups and scratch-outs, I would be destined for the trash pile. Jesus is the editor of my life. And if you know him as your Lord and Savior, he's your editor too. And the good news of the gospel is that despite our own amateur style and our overplayed tropes and our mix-ups and our typos, we get to turn in his essay in all its perfection. Through our passage today, God has, has humbled me in preparing for this. And I pray that he humbles all of us when he speaks about the blessing of a renewed critical mind but also the danger of a critical heart. We're going to talk about things like judgmentalism and hypocrisy. But friends, I want to say here at the start, we can hear it all from a place of security in the finished work of Jesus, who rather than being out there going to mark up your life with some violent red pen, is redeeming it with his own story. And all that red is not ink condemning you, It's his blood saving you. So today has got two parts. First is, what is the kingdom fruit that we're meant to bear? And then how do we bear it? What's the fruit and how do we bear it? But before we get into God's word, I would love it for all our sakes if you would pray for me. (laughs) We can pray together. Father, please quiet our hearts to receive what you say. Comfort us, convict us, and then restore us, God. Holy Spirit, it's only by your grace that we can understand and apply any of your truth. You say your word will cut to the heart. It will not return to you void. It will accomplish your purposes. Thank you, God, for accomplishing your purposes in us. God, we want you to receive maximum glory today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. So if you guys have a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to Matthew 7, verses 1 to 11. And these are the words of Jesus, our lion and our sacrificial lamb. And hold it open because we are going to be living here for the next 25 or 30 minutes, depending. Um, So first thing, what is the kingdom fruit that we are meant to bear? We're going to dive in in verse 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. 
I probably don't need to tell you that judging comes so easily. The problem is real. A research group recently found that 85% of non-Christian millennials describe Christianity as hypocritical. 85%. Another study recently found that within the church, the most common church-related reason people leave is that church members are judgmental. It's heart check time. Ask yourself, why do I care so much more about my coworkers' annoying habits than my own? Why am I more concerned with my friend's oversight or flaw or political opinion than mine? And why am I more tired of my wife's or my husband's shortcomings than my own? All those get to me. It's because even as we're being sanctified, taking on that full identity of children of God, we do, we wrestle with the flesh, don't we? And the flesh tells us it's okay to be judgmental. That critical spirit, it's so common, a lot of people, including many Christians, don't even think of it as a sin. Jerry Bridges, he writes this really awesome book, it's called Respectable Sins, Recommended. He says, judgmentalism is one of the most subtle of our respectable sins because it's often practiced under the guise of being zealous for what's right. See, we assume our opinion is correct, and then we equate our opinion with truth. Our opinions about church music, about how you should talk and think and dress and believe, about how you should move or not move in worship. Judgmentalism is subtle, but it's also pervasive. Isn't Matthew 7, 1 one of the best-known verses in the whole Bible, both by Christians and by the culture? Folks are like, look, if you say anything against me, you're a bad Christian. God tells you not to judge me. Well, crumbs, y'all, crumbs, because you're kind, of, you're kind of right. You're kind of right, maybe. Are you? It'll help to start by saying what Jesus does not mean when he's talking about judgmentalism. Jesus is not saying we should abolish the Supreme Court or boycott church discipline or stop being discerning about what's from him and what isn't. We know emperors and elders are from God. That's Romans 13. That is 1 Corinthians 5. There is such a thing as good fruit and bad fruit. And Jesus has been helping us to identify it all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us to discriminate between the kingdom way and the way of the Pharisees, between light and darkness. Verse 6 of our text today is going to be about spiritual discernment. 1 John and 1 Thessalonians tell us to test the spirits, to test everything. Next week, Luis is going to talk about identifying those false prophets. And as much as the culture might like us to believe it, Jesus did not preach relativism. He just didn't. There really is a broad gate that leads to destruction. Jesus says straight up that murder and adultery and hypocrisy are wrong and that love and mercy and grace are good. So we have governments and we have shepherds and critical thinking skills for healthy and God-given reasons. And it's for the very purpose of encouraging us to be more like Jesus. It is to keep the kingdom way paramount. So if this isn't about fighting the rule of law or abandoning a biblical moral compass, 
What, is, what does this mean? Well, there are at least three, but I'm going to focus on three things that I think we can draw from what Jesus is talking about. First, Jesus says kingdom fruit is not judgmentalism, it's grace. Judgmentalism is so much about our heart attitude. Through our whole series, we keep going back to God's emphasis on renewing us from the inside out. Love of the Father, faith in Jesus, that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, these kind of things, they produce naturally the fruit of holiness. It's not something that we can reverse engineer as though external holiness could produce soul righteousness. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do. But the Lord ponders the heart. Consider the story of Jonah. He had a cold, judging heart toward the people of Nineveh. And then, when God showed compassion to them, it just made Jonah angrier. And we are guilty of that sometimes too, aren't we? Sometimes of condemning people, picking out their faults, not being happy when God chooses to bless them. God, how can you be gracious to those folks? See, sometimes the enemy can draw us away from God by making us apathetic. Not, not caring too much about obedience or God's will. But sometimes he can take us the other way. He can draw us away from the Lord by making us overzealous, sure and proud that we're right and somebody else is wrong. Now contrast Jonah with the time a bunch of pastors brought an adulterous woman to Jesus and said, teacher, we need to punish this one. And what's Jesus say? He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And slowly they each walked away because they knew that they too had lied and cheated and lusted and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the woman was left alone with Jesus, the one who is actually perfect, the only one who actually has the right to judge her guilty. Because she was. But he didn't. No, Jesus does acknowledge her sin, and that is super important. He gives her a real command. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. But he does not condemn her. He has mercy on her, just like he does for us. Where Jonah had no right to judge because he himself was disobedient, Jesus has every right because he is righteous. And where Jonah was angry at the Lord's compassion... Jesus loves to give that grace. Well, let the same be said of us, church. Ask the Lord to help you, to help you stop gossiping, to balance a theological confidence with a theological humility. Seek the Spirit to give you that critical, renewed mind, but to take away your critical spirit. Take on the clothing of Jesus' humility and remember the great commandments to love God and to love others. And then get woke to the ways of the wayward world and wise to the forgiving ways of Christ. Now if you're thinking, fine, Griffin, that, that sounds cool, but it sounds like striving. It sounds like this do, 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 or it sounds like what Steve was talking about last week, this YouTube bit, just stop it. Or if you're just asking, how do I do this? Super glad about that, and we are going to get to it. But first, I want to ask another a, a kind of practical question. It's just, what if we don't? Jesus, what if we don't do what you say? 
Well, practically, we are just going to come off real bad because social, <laughs> social psychology tells us human beings are just not very good at judging each other. We judge based on the information that is available to us. We judge based on our own personal bias. We judge based on the loudest voice in the room. Rarely do we judge based on love, and rarely do we judge based on the full truth. And then there is a worse cost. And Jesus tells us in verse 2, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Come on, church, do you want God to judge you on the last day the way you've judged others? To say, as we sometimes do, I saw that. I know what you said. You failed. No. As his children, our father will say, you have the righteousness of my son Jesus. He'll say what what Jesus said to the adulterous woman, neither do I condemn you. But who are you judging? About whom do you go home and tell your spouse or your roommate? He always does this. She always says that. He said, what? Rather, empathize and ask questions and think the best. We talk a lot in this church about honor, about a currency of honor. Well, I would love it. Let us see each other with pure hearts and pray for each other and give the benefit of the doubt. Good judgment is gracious. It happens in community. It happens over time, not in snap judgments. There is correction. Where we, fall, where we fall short, as Paul says in Galatians, restore me gently. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Bear with one another in love, he says to the Ephesians. Have Jesus' heart and the Spirit's eyes and the Father's all-consuming love. What Jesus is doing here is a great leveling. While we want to make ourselves superior and others inferior, Jesus is like, No, we are all on the same page, and God is the only good judge. Look at the imagery of what's happening here. All the people are on the hillside, and Jesus is on the mountaintop. But God doesn't leave us down there without hope. He lifts us up, and he makes us worthy and gives us an identity that never fades. So be freed from the judgment seat. There is no freedom there anyway. And go to the mercy seat. And then find us all together on the hillside with a new heart posture, one that is a little bit more self-critical and so much more other-loving. And find God himself, that only good judge, on the mountaintop, high and lifted up. So Jesus says kingdom fruit is not judgmentalism, it's grace. Second thing, Jesus says kingdom fruit is not hypocrisy, it's humility and vision. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now the metaphor Jesus is using is so arresting. I'm not going to cheapen it with too many of my own words except to say a story. And this one my wife Colleen gave the go-ahead. So 
she and I, might surprise some of you, she and I, we like to have some, some pretty deep theological discussions. Tiffs, sometimes, shall we say. And we've, we've had a few doozies. And we'll be talking along, and it's just it's so loving. It's so loving and encouraging and profound. And then Colleen will say something, and it's, it's not even wrong. But it's, it's just not 100% Griffin-approved correct. And so, thinking myself a, a caring, decent husband, I know it's my job to point that out, obviously. And I, and I will. And Colleen will say, no, because she's a strong woman who refuses to be outsmarted. But I'll, I'll insist, and I'll say, no, honey, it's like this. No, it's, it's like this. And I will debate this until kingdom come. And after two hours later, because I said this was serious, I will disregard pretty much any good argument my wife makes in pursuit of truth, which is really now just pursuit of me being correct. That's the code for, for pursuit of truth. It's just I want to be right. <laughs> well, church, that is some rubbish. That is ridiculous. And yet we all do versions of that. The hypocrisy, of course, is me saying you're wrong and then being horribly wrong myself and not caring too much about that. All I'm doing is blinding us both. What Jesus says about hypocrisy should remind us of what he says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That is humility, church. See, it's only when we are redeemed from our own blind spots that we can have the healer's clear-sightedness to bless others. And even then, it is always and only Christ who does the blessing. And that is the point. Again, this revolutionary leveling, you and I are on the hillside, and God reigns on the mountaintop. So Jesus says kingdom fruit is not hypocrisy, it is humility in the healer's vision. Number three, Jesus says kingdom fruit is not gospel apathy, but discernment and gospel love. Verse six, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. What is going on here? It sounds a little bit like judgment. People are getting called dogs and pigs up in here. In this little parable, the dogs and the pigs are those who are hostile to the gospel, to the sacred thing, to the pearl we hold dear. These are not precious puppies and piglets. These are the folks who will trample the good news of Jesus and then turn and tear God's evangelist to shreds. But still, isn't this too strong? Jesus, what are you, what are you getting at? Well, a couple important side notes first. Number one is that when Jesus refers to dogs and pigs, these are example statements, not worth statements. We know from the whole Bible that all people have value to God and so should have value to us. We're not to dismiss people's worth. That would be the judgmentalism Jesus is trying to prune from us. Second thing, I I do think what Jesus is talking about here is is a very rare thing. And I say that because all over the New Testament, we see calls to go out and preach the gospel, to practice the power so that the whole world, all those pigs and dogs and donkeys and dodos and all the rest will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. 
In this church, we talk about all of Jesus for everyone. Steve preached a few weeks ago from Matthew 5, let your light shine before others. In Matthew 28, Jesus is going to give us the great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. So we know, we know that the general principle of God's people is to spread the gospel, to share the pearl. And yet here, Jesus is clearly calling us to some kind of an exception, at least a redirection. He calls us to love him more than anything we can do for him. Jesus makes us righteous. He is the pearl. And if we love him, if we truly love him, why would we hand out the precious gospel only for it to be spat on, treated like garbage instead of gold? There is a place for saying, I will not expose the precious gospel of my Savior to scorn. Not because the gospel can't stand up to it. And not because it makes you and me feel uncomfortable. But because the gospel is a pearl. Life-changing, invaluable, something to be so deeply honored. So this verse, it's not an excuse to escape the Great Commission or to write folks off. But we need to recognize that it's Jesus and his spirit who do the work of judging and convicting and of saving. He ensures that his gospel is glorified, despite ourselves. And through us also, he ensures it, not us. We are on the hillside, and he is on the mountaintop. So Jesus says kingdom fruit is not gospel apathy. It is discernment and gospel love. So kingdom people, what kind of fruit are we meant to bear? We are bearing grace fruit, not judgmentalism. Humility and vision, not hypocrisy. Discernment and gospel love, not gospel apathy. All right, we are getting there. Now we've seen, we've seen something of how Jesus says the kingdom culture is to be. We've seen some of the what. But what about that how? As in, how do we bear grace fruit and discernment fruit and gospel love fruit? Well, it's answered in what comes next, in the way kingdom people relate to our Father. See, at this point, I know I'm meant to bear good kingdom fruit from the inside out. I know there's this awesome kingdom counterculture, and I want in to that. I want to live the way Jesus describes. But here, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, some of us might feel a little bit overwhelmed because we see how hard it is to live as kingdom people. Because sometimes I do get angry, and sometimes I do judge. How can I live the way Jesus describes? It's not legalism not working ourselves in, and it's not cheap grace either. How can I live in the kingdom now? Well, Jesus tells us, he says, ask. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, that is some truth for you. You all ready for the gospel? Y'all ready for the gospel? All right. Jesus, God, became a man. He was faced with temptations like ours. He, the only rightful judge, was faced with the temptation to judge. And yet he had mercy. 
And then we crucified him, you and me and all of our sins. We dared to judge God. And then the perfect one, three days in the ground, and he judged sin. He judged our judgmentalism. He judged our hypocrisy. He defeated death. And as we sang, then he rose. And that's not all. He says that you too can rise. If you don't know Jesus as the Savior that he is, you can live in the kingdom. You can be righteous. You can have the worth he gives you and the identity for which you were made. You can have his power and holiness, obedience and love. You can have his very spirit. But maybe you're still asking how... And Jesus is still saying, ask, just ask, and praise God that he wants us to ask. Church, pray boldly, pray boldly, pray expectantly, pray full of faith. This is not some Oprah giveaway. This is intimacy that we're talking about. This is ask and it will be given to you. And as our hearts more and more align with his, it's also Jesus in the garden saying to his father, asking for his cup to pass and saying the key words, not my will, but yours be done. Only in the kingdom can these two things live together. How do they fit? This is heaven meeting earth. It's that deep prayer of asking that will be given and it's submission of our hearts to God's good will as he restores us. Stephen James has been pointing us here all along. The greater blessing of prayer is not whether it's answered the way we want or not, though God does care about the answer. The greater blessing of prayer is intimacy with God. It's intimacy with our Father, and that is his will for you. And what a gift. That is the how. That is what Jesus is giving us here. A call to prayer, to persistent, give me grace prayer. And it's open-handed prayer. Because church, when we ask, we get to receive The throne of grace is here, and it's available to you. And God is calling you to it. So keep going there. Keep going there, not to fill some quota, but because God loves you, and he hears you, and he knows how to free you, and God knows what you need before you ask, and yet he loves it when you ask. It's the Spirit who stirs your prayer in the first place because he loves you. Going back to the Beatitudes again, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? They will be filled. To know him more and to love him more and to make culture and to build up the church. Prayer is not just a transaction of blessing. It is so much richer than that. It's about glorifying God. It is about confessing our sins. It's about thanking him for his goodness and it's about experiencing the presence and the power and the love of our Father. Prayer is about relationship, not receiving favor. And yet, there is favor to be received. Verse 9, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And there's an exclamation point at the end of that one. Do you know what the good gift is? 
Well, there is a parallel passage in Luke 11, and and Luke identifies it for us. He says the free and joyfully given gift of God to his children is the gift of himself. Luke says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What is better? What is better than that, church? This is intimacy we're talking about. Receive that. And how happy the Lord is to make his children more and more like him when their desire wells up into their knocking on his door. Do you want the Holy Spirit? Ask. Do you want your life to sprout good fruit? Seek. Do you dare ask for eyes to see your sin and to engage in the blessing of repentance? Knock that door down. (laughs) You want sanctification? Do you want Jesus in your heart? Do you want to be a citizen of the kingdom? Do you want on earth as it is in heaven? Do you want to have a father? God wants that for you too. Ask for those things. Ask also for those promotions and for physical comfort and for fun. And God is often loving and gracious to give those things too because all the gifts point back to the giver. And so often the answer is in the asking. This how of relating to our good father, this nearness, this intimacy, it's what empowers us to live and to love more fully in the kingdom of God. And in the end, as we more and more turn to that kingdom rather than the world, as we come to love God more than our own flesh, it's that intimacy of asking and seeking and knocking that is itself a blessing. And the sound you hear when you knock on the doors of heaven, inviting you into the garden under the folds of his wings... It's just God calling you to the great feast of the Lamb in his own kingdom and saying to you, his child, welcome home. Now before, I, before I'm in my seat, we definitely need to apply this. Three things, so many more than three things, but I'm just going to say three prayers for this week and for today and for right now where we can go to the Lord in obedience and expectation to become more and more ambassadors of his kingdom. They should be on the screen at some point. But first one, let's ask the Lord for freedom from judgmentalism and then the joy, the joy to see others the way our Heavenly Father sees them. What would that be like? Ask for that freedom. Ask for that joy. The Lord loves to give those gifts. Second thing, if you are asking for good spiritual gifts and you believe that you are not receiving Let's pray together. What are you asking for and why? What is the Lord doing in your midst? And then we are going to trust in the Lord's word and the Lord's promises and lean not on our own understanding or experience. The Lord is faithful to do what he says. And then number three, what does God want you to ask him for right now? We want to ask about the asking. God, what do you want me to ask you for? Is it deliverance? Is it the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit? Is it salvation? Let's ask together. So God calls us to pray. 
He calls us to intimacy with him, so that's what we're going to do. And the ministry team will come up in a couple minutes. If you want to pray with others, or if you are asking and seeking and knocking for the good gifts of a good God, please come and pray to your Father with your family. We could clap for hours. We thank God. Yeah. But I think the best way to honor Griffin right now is to respond. Because while you have truly blessed us, the Lord has used you and the Lord's at work. And that's what we want to honor. So, uh, Eloise, can we get those questions back up just at the end? And can I just invite you all to stand just for a moment? I know we're a touch over. That's okay. We're going to be done in just a moment. And as we've stood, can I just get the ministry team to come down front? If you're serving on the ministry team, this is just a, a group of people that we trust and have equipped to, to pray alongside you if you're trusting anyway. So as that team comes forward, as Griffin said, we have to respond. So I just want to take a moment. There's no music playing. There's no, there's no anything. Can we just stand here and as you see these questions, freedom from judgmentalism, and instead the joy to see people the way God sees them. If you're asking for good spiritual gifts... What does the Lord want you to ask him for right now? Some of you may be feeling the need to repent. And that repentance, that word repent just means a turning away from what has been and a turning toward what God has for us. Some of you may be saying there's an ache in my heart for everything that the Lord has for me. And that needs to be on your lips. And then lastly, as Griffin said, are you ready for the gospel? If you're here today and you have never done this thing that you've heard, and that is to give your life to Jesus, you may have heard it called placing your faith in him. It is essentially saying, Lord Jesus, I believe you are alive. I believe you are fully God, and I want you to be the Lord of my life. And as you declare that to him, he will come into your life, and he will never leave it. And if that's you, don't leave today. Please come up. See Griffin, see me, see any of the team up here. Can we just take a moment? Any posture, physically, standing, hands raised, anything. And let's just respond. Asking the Lord, who has called us to ask, in the way that he's spoken specifically to you today. Jesus, you are so good. Holy Spirit, you are so good. Father, you are so, so good. We praise you. Praise you for what you've done and what you will do. 
God, I have a personal testimony that I praise you that this, that I, I, that you were glorified today, that you were such a comfort and a peace. And you can do that for all of your children, God. And I just pray that you would give freedom, give joy, give peace, give comfort, and bring salvation right now today. We love you and we trust you, God. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Nobody. Nobody and nothing. And so we are excited to see you move, God. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. In honoring Griffin, can we honor the Lord? Let's give him a hand. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us. Church in the City, all of Jesus for everyone.